Hello. Good evening. Can you hear me? Okay. Good evening, good evening. How are we all this evening? Huh? What? Thanks, Philorator. I appreciate it. Okay. So, um, I don't know if you guys saw my most recent video um, on the uh, feminist prosecutor issue. <clears throat> but if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. So that's all I'm going to say about that right now. So tonight's case study, um, this will be my second installment. Um, and if you're new to this, um, I'll just uh, briefly explain the purpose for these videos. And that is to um, highlight uh, sex crime cases that have resulted in conviction, but then were overturned. They had the conviction overturned on appeal. Um, and uh, it's basically to highlight uh, cases that can help people who may have been uh, wrongly accused. Obviously, if you did the crime and you're trying to appeal it, these cases aren't going to help you. But if your uh, case is similar, which a lot of these cases do have similarities to them, they might be able to help you. But it's also good to know, just as a Canadian citizen, to know what's happening in our courts and to um, dispel the myth that false accusations are rare and that false uh, wrongful convictions are rare and that you need hardcore evidence in order to even get a case into court. These cases prove all of that to be wrong. So I'm basically developing a body of these cases um, and all of my other videos kind of talk about all the various aspects of why this happens in our courts and who's behind it. So tonight's case, okay, case number two. A photographer was accused of sexual assaulting a young woman after engaging in a model shoot at his condo or studio after meeting on social networking on a social social networking app. The woman had sent an, an anonymous email to the police the next morning, and then he was arrested 14 months later. The trial judge incorrectly used that email in the absence of any other material evidence as corroborative evidence of a prior consistent statement and convicted the man based solely on the testimony of the accuser. Mr. Zhu claimed that she made the false accusation because he had rebuffed her sexual advances toward him. So this case has a publication ban on it, but I believe it probably doesn't really matter anymore. The case, I think, has uh, not, it's no longer ongoing. This was overturned in 2017, um, early 2017. So if there was to be another appeal on this, it would have, I'm sure it would have happened by now. So, of course, the, the complainant is not named in this anyway. And this happened in Ontario. This was in the news, in the local news, um, in around 2013, I believe, is when he was initially charged. So it took him four years to get his appeal, his conviction overturned about that. 
All right. <clears throat> so the overview of the case, according to this. Oh, let me get you the link. I'm going to do my usual. I'm going to put the link in the chat. Yes, upvote the stream, people, while you're watching, because then it'll spread it around on Twitter. And also, if you're new and you're watching and you like this so far, you want to see more of these, um, hit the subscribe button. Let's see here. And hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, and you will get notifications. Back to the case. All right, so the overview. The appellant was convicted of sexually assaulting AY. The trial judge imposed a sentence of two years less one day. The appellant appeals his conviction. <clears throat> two years less one day means he goes to a provincial jail versus a, uh, a, a prison, um, a correctional prison, uh, like uh, a federal prison. Sorry, that was the word I was looking for. So our provincial jails in Ontario are, are known hell holes. And if you haven't heard or noticed, but there's a lot of, um, our, our, there's a lot of um, news about how we hold people who are not um, sentenced, of a, convicted of a crime, they're awaiting trial, or they are immigration detainees and they get murdered or they die in our provincial jails. These are the facilities that men uh, convicted of sexual assault go to when they're sentenced to two years less a day. If it's two years, then you go to the federal penitentiary where it's a whole different ball game. So anyway, the appellant advances three grounds of appeal and we will find out if they entertain all three of them or if just one of them works. The trial judge imposed a sentence of, uh, sorry, the first ground raises the often vexing question of the evidentiary use that can be made of a complainant's prior consistent statement. This is something that's often, prior consistent statements is often an issue in trials because this is all we have. We have a, a she said, he said case. So it's all about weighing the credibility and whose statements make more sense and whatever. So a prior consistent statement is just that somebody made the same statement more than once before, which would seemingly make them more credible or make their claim more likely to be true. Let me go on. Shortly after the alleged assault, AY sent an anonymous email to the police in which she had been sexually assaulted by the appellant. Her description of the assault was consistent with her trial testimony. In his reasons, the trial judge relied on the email as corroboration of AY's testimony. The appellant submits that although the email was admissible for a limited purpose, it could not, as a matter of law, corroborate AY's evidence. So the appeal panel agrees and allows the appeal on that basis but would not give effect to the other arguments and do not propose to address them in these reasons. So the defense proposed three grounds on their appeal and this appeal court is only dealing with the one of them, one of them and that is the one that I just read and the main issue is prior consistent statement and corroboration. 
Those are the issues in this appeal. So the other two grounds, we have no idea what they are. So the evidence of this case, the photo shoot. AY is from China in July 2012. She was 18 and attending university at uh, Toronto on a student visa. The appellant was 33 and working for an IT company, and the two met on a social networking app. AY testified that the appellant described himself in his profile as a photographer. His profile included photographs of young women. AY recognized one of the women as a person that she knew from school. In his profile, the appellant offered to provide aspiring models with free photographs. This is nothing creepy or unusual or out of the ordinary. I used to be a part of a photography community in various photography communities, and it's very common, not as a model, but as a photographer, just throwing that in there. Um, although I did model occasionally, but it was for my photographer buddies. But anyway, so there's a there's an online website called Model Mayhem, I believe is what it's called. And it's where models advertise themselves in hopes that a photographer will want to shoot them. And obviously, uh, it, it often it's just a, you know, um, I'll let you shoot me in exchange for free photographs. So they both, neither of them have to pay for each, for each other's services. And it's just a you help me and I help you kind of arrangement. It's very, very common in the photography world. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. I've nothing nefarious about it whatsoever. I've never experienced anything nefarious. I'd never witnessed anything nefarious. There you have it. So that's, so far this scenario is nothing unusual. AY and the appellant exchanged messages. After browsing some of the photographs of other young women on the appellant's profile, AY agreed to meet the appellant at his condo for a photo shoot. On the agreed, on the agreed to day, AY went to the condo and waited in the lobby. The appellant arrived about one hour later and they went upstairs to his condo. The appellant offered AY a drink and she took one and had a few sips. They talked about different things. The appellant presented himself as a well-off, sophisticated, talented fashion photographer. AY was not sure whether the appellant was telling the truth about himself. The appellant expressed some disappointment with the black dress that AY was wearing. He intended to photograph her in a style popularized by a famous Japanese photographer. That style called for colorful erotic clothing. So she comes in a black dress, he was expecting her to come in something colorful. The appellant took two series of photographs of AY anyway, and in the first series AY wore the black dress. Then in the second, she wore a tank top provided by the appellant. Some of the photographs were sexually suggestive. Well, of course. AY testified that the appellant told her how to pose. Again, that's nothing unusual. He testified that AY chose her poses without his input. Whatever. After taking two sets of photographs, AY and the appellant sat down on the couch to look through the photographs on his camera. According to AY, the appellant attempted to kiss her twice, and he also touched her. The appellant assured AY that it was common for photographers and their models to be intimate so that they could gain a better understanding of each other. Eh, Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I've never heard of that (laughs) in the photographer community myself. AY testified that she repeatedly told the appellant to stop. He eventually stopped and assured her that he would not make any more advances. The appellant 
invited A.Y. to sit on the side of the bed near the couch. She did so, and they talked briefly. The appellant then attacked A.Y., pushing her to the bed and groping her. A.Y. tried to push the appellant away, but she could not overcome his assaults. He eventually removed his clothing and pulled her underwear off. He tried to have sexual intercourse with A.Y. A.Y. continues to testify that she initially resisted the efforts at sexual intercourse, but then realized that she could not stop him. She asked the appellant to use a condom. He produced a condom and proceeded to have sexual intercourse with A.Y. She did not consent, but instead stopped resisting, realizing that it was futile. After about 10 minutes, the appellant stopped. A.Y. fled into the bathroom. She was not sure whether the appellant had used a condom, but she suspected that he had, had not, as she noticed a liquid discharge in her vagina. I don't know how you not notice that until later. I mean, <laughs> you know when it's there, when it's happened. A.Y. testified that she was angry and wanted to get away from the appellant. When she left the washroom, the appellant said that she should come back to his condo in a few days to get her photographs. See, that part I believe. <laughs> Although A.Y. had no interest in the photographs and only wanted to get away from the appellant, she replied, we'll see. So the appellant escorted A.Y. to a taxi stand near the condo and he was holding her hand as they went through the condo lobby. A.Y. got into a taxi and went straight home. The appellant gave a very different version of the events that followed the photography sessions. He testified that when he and A.Y. were sitting on the couch looking at the photographs, A.Y. kissed him. The appellant said that he was surprised and shocked. He told A.Y. that he had a girlfriend and reminded A.Y. that she had told him that, that she had a boyfriend. A.Y. became angry when the appellant rebuffed her advances. The appellant agreed that before A.Y. left, he invited her to return in a few days to pick up her photographs. He escorted her to a taxi stand outside his condo, and he heard nothing about any alleged sexual assault until about 14 months later. What a terrible guy escorting him, escorting her to the taxi. Just like, wow, that's just a terrible, mean thing for him to do. Yeah. So the email. All right, so now we want to know what this email is. So A.Y. testified that when she got home, she was so angry. She blamed herself for foolishly putting herself in a position in which the appellant could take advantage of her. She was so upset that she could not sleep. Early the next morning, A.Y. decided to report the assault by sending an anonymous email to the local police station. A.Y. did not use her regular email address, but instead used one she had registered years earlier and no longer used. Now, why would you make an anonymous complaint to the police? Unless you're just trying to cause trouble in someone's life and you just expect the police to just show up his door, at his door. <laughs> anyway, in the email, A.Y. described the appellant's attack on her in some detail. The description was consistent with her trial testimony. She referred to the appellant as Jay, an alias that he used online, and provided his phone number. She concluded the email with a request that the police contact her and do something about the assault. AY did not give her name, and the only email address available to the police was the one that she used to send the email. She sent the email on July 31, 2012, the morning after the alleged assault. 
The police responded by email on January 10th, 2013, about five and one and five and one half five and a half months later. According to the police email, no one had checked the mailbox to which AI AY had sent her email for a few months. In their email, the police asked AY to come forward and identify herself so that they could investigate the allegation. That seems weird. They wouldn't check their inbox for a few months. Maybe they did, but they couldn't or chose not to respond or didn't prioritize it because she didn't put her name in it. She didn't identify who she was. She just wanted the police to go to his apartment and, and bang on his door and arrest him. So AY testified that although she initially checked for responses to her July 31st email on a regular basis, she stopped doing so after receiving no response from the police. AY had not checked the email for some time when she checked it in August 2013 and found the email sent by police on January 10th of 2013. AY was with her boyfriend when she read the police email. She became upset and eventually told her boyfriend what had happened. He convinced her that she had to go to the police. She did so and the ensuing investigation led to the appellant's arrest some 14 months later. And again, her boyfriend, what another terrible man. She tells him that she's been raped by this guy and nothing's done. And her boyfriend says, whoa, babe, you better go to the police. You better do something about that. That's terrible. You know, he's helping her out. Terrible dude, another terrible dude. All right, so the trial judge's reasons. <clears throat> AY and the appellant were the only witness at trial. There were no other witnesses. The defense position was that the alleged assault never happened, which is a very common position because you know what? A lot of times it never happened. So what else can he say? Anyway, the defense claimed that AY falsely accused the appellant because he had rebuffed her sexual advances. The trial judge recognized that the outcome of the trial turned on his assessment of credibility and reliability of AY and the appellant. He directed himself that he must make his assessment using the well-known three-part analysis described in R versus WD, a 1991 Supreme Court of Canada precedent that judges like to use. They don't have to, but they, they do because it's a good way to convict people. So the trial judge first considered and rejected the appellant's evidence, concluding that it was incredible and did not leave him with a reasonable doubt. The trial judge accepted that the appellant gave his evidence in a straightforward and non-argumentative manner, but ultimately found that his story did not make sense. The trial judge turned next to AY's evidence, her evidence. He reviewed her testimony and found it credible and reliable. And at paragraph 30, the trial judge set, set out in the bullet point form that his reasons for finding AY credible. He, he points out his reasons for finding her credible. For convenience, I have numbered the bullet points. The third bullet point is the main focus of this ground of appeal. One, AY readily agreed to factual errors in her testimony, both before me and at the preliminary inquiry and explained the reasons for them. She did not argue with counsel, but took her time and try to try and answer the questions. AY's decision to send an email and not follow up is very consistent with the behavior of a victim who is ashamed of her own gullibility. 
Waiting to remain anonymous is common among victims of sexual assault. Wanting to remain anonymous. AY said as much herself. She called herself ignorant. I would use different words. I would say that she was young and naive. And last, thus most importantly, I find AY's email sent contemporaneously with the events to be corroboration of her evidence. That's the error right there. That's the big error. Uh, corroboration has to be something that validates the truth of something. And s having sent an email, especially an anonymous email, having sent an email claiming something happened and then reiterating it again to another person, that doesn't validate the truth of something. You can still tell the same lie twice. It's not that hard to do. You might get the details a little mixed up, but all, essentially it's not hard to tell the same lie twice. So the appeal judges go on. Did the trial judge make improper use of AY's email to the police? References to the email at trial in the evidence. AY's email to the police was introduced into evidence during her examination in chief. She read the document into the record in its entirety and it was made an exhibit. There was no objection by trial counsel for the appellant and no indication by counsel or the trial judge of the purpose for which the email was tendered or any limitation on its use. In cross-examination, AY testified that the contents of the email helped refresh her memory on a few details of the encounter with the appellant. Ah, so she did tell a different story. AY was cross-examined about the time at which she sent the email and one minor inconsistency between the email and her testimony. In the arguments, both counsel made reference to the email in their closing arguments. Defense counsel relied on the sending of an anonymous, untraceable email and the failure to follow up on the email to support the position that the allegation was untrue and fabricated, fabricated by AY as revenge for the appellant's rejection of her advances and as some form of self-protection should her boyfriend or family members find out about the encounter with the appellant. Hmm. So I guess she had this boyfriend at the time. So she was hiding the fact that she hooked up or was trying to hook up with the photographer. Interesting. <clears throat> In his submissions at trial, Crown Counsel maintained that AY was a credible and reliable witness. He referred to both the email and AY's conduct after leaving the condo. He argued that the defense position that AY had made a false accusation to gain revenge or somehow protect herself made no sense in light of the manner in which AY reported the assault. Counsel submitted that sending an anonymous email and not following up on it was a truly bizarre way for a complainant to make a false allegation of sexual assault. <laughs> That's... wow. The way these people twist common sense around to make it sound like that common sense that you're presenting to me makes no common sense whatsoever? It's, it's amazing. And this judge bought it. Crown counsel also argued that AY's version of the incident had been consistent throughout, beginning with the description of the assault in the email and culminating with her testimony at trial. So the night that she returned from his condo, she wrote in somewhat halting English an account of what happened to her that night in his condo which has really, in terms of material facts, 
has been completely unchanged from the moment she wrote it until the day that she finished testifying here at this trial. She has never wavered. She has been cross-examined at a preliminary inquiry and cross-examined at a trial, and she has been consistent in terms of the material and important elements of what occurred that night. I read these, these emphases emphatic statements all the time by crowns. She told her story once. She told it twice. She told it three times. She is credible. She never wavered. But when you dig into the actual transcripts of these statements, you will find gazillions of inconsistencies. And in my last live stream, I focused on major inconsistencies that were brought up, but the judge just outright ignored. So yeah, anyway, this is not about major inconsistencies. This is about an email being used as corroborating a claim to make it true. So in the trial judge's reasons, the trial judge referred to the email six times in his reasons. He first averted to it in his overview of the case at the beginning of the judgment. The second and third references to the email appear at paragraph 16 and 17 when the trial judge is summarizing AY's evidence and the relevant portion at paragraph 16 reads, the email went on to describe the sexual assault in some detail. It did not differ in any significant way from the evidence that AY gave at this trial. The trial judge refers to the email for a fourth time when he's explaining his reasons for rejecting the appellant's evidence. In the course of examining the defense submission that AY had falsely accused the appellant because she was angry with him after he rejected her, the trial judge says at paragraph 25, most importantly, the idea that AY decided to go to the police and claim she was sexually assaulted because the appellant spurned her makes no sense given how her contact with the police developed. She deliberately hid her identity and then did not pursue the matter when the police did not respond instantly. She only went to the police when her boyfriend insisted. Her behavior was inconsistent with a desire to see the appellant arrested and charged. Mm -hmm. Her behavior was much more consistent with that of a sexual assault victim who was embarrassed than with a woman spurned and seeking revenge. Obviously, the appellant is not responsible for AY's behavior, but in the context of these facts, the defense theory does not make sense. So let me just point something out here. Her behavior is more consistent with that of a sexual assault victim who is embarrassed. Now, this is a myth, I will call it a myth, that is pervasive in our courts where judges and crowns just assume that a sexual assault victim does not come forward to later or delays a uh, um, disclosure or will disclose um, for no, uh, only for the reason because it occurred. They, they, they just, they will not choose to believe. And there was a good defense theory presented in this case of revenge. They will not believe the revenge theory. These people can't understand why a woman or a girl would would purposely go out, call the police, make an accusation, twist things around in order to hurt a person and, you know, take away their liberty. People 
in our courts, for some reason, do not want to believe that women will do that. And this is a myth. This is something somehow we need to overcome. I don't know how, but we do. So I'll continue on. We're almost done here. <clears throat> the fifth and sixth references by the trial judge to the email appear in the paragraph in which he sets out his reasons for finding AY credible. The paragraph is set out at paragraph 25 of these reasons. For convenience, I will repeat the two bullet points that refer to the email. One, AY's decision to send an email and not follow up is very consistent with the behavior of a victim who is ashamed of her own gullibility. And two, thus most importantly, I find AY's email sent contemporaneously with the events to be corroboration of her evidence. Contemporaneously basically means right away, right afterwards. So he's saying that because she sent the email right after it occurred, that made her more credible. So the trial judge's uses of the email in his reasons. At paragraph 25 of his reasons, the trial judge used the evidence that AY sent an anonymous email to the police complaining about the assault in considering and rejecting the defense submission that AY had falsely accused the appellant because she was angry when he rejected her sexual advances. Ms. Hennen, for the appellant, Marie Hennen, yes, it, it's the Marie Hennen, accepts that the email could be used to undermine the defense position as to the motive for AY's false accusation. Used in this way, the email is a relevant piece of circumstantial evidence that, placed in the context of the rest of the evidence, makes the existence of the reason advanced by the defense for AY's false allegation more, or, as the trial judge found, less likely. The truth of the contents of the email is irrelevant to this evidentiary use. The trial judge used the email in a second way that is very closely related to the first. In bullet point two, the trial judge reasoned that AY's decision to send an anonymous email to the police and her failure to follow up on that email were consistent with her evidence that she was angry, confused, and ashamed of her own gullibility after the incident. In the trial judge's assessment, the sending of the email and the failure to follow up was conduct that was consistent with AY's testimony about her state of mind after the incident. As with the first use of the email, the truth of the contents of the email was irrelevant to this evidentiary issue. In my view, the appeal court, the second use of the email is indistinguishable for evidentiary purposes from the first. In both instances, the email is treated as a piece of circumstantial evidence relevant to a fact in issue, which is fine. But the trial judge's finding that AY's conduct in respect of the email and its aftermath was consistent with AY's description of her state of mind necessarily impacted the trial judge's assessment of her credibility in a positive way. There might be a word missing there. Anyway. If the trial judge used the email evidence only for the two purposes described above, this ground of appeal would have failed. That's if you're if you're looking for appeal cases and you're you want to use this one, you need to take note of that particular line right there. If the trial judge used the email evidence only for the two purposes above described, these these two purposes up here than he could have. <laughs> so the appellant submits, however, that the trial judge went beyond those two uses. 
He refers to the trial judge's description of the email as corroboration of AY's evidence. So just using that word corroboration, just just typing that word. See, if he if he did not type that word corroboration, did not use that word in his judgment, this dude may never have gotten his conviction overturned. Think about that. So this appeal is just based on one word that was used. One second. So he refer refers to the trial judge's description of the email as corroboration of AY's evidence in bullet point as demonstrating that the trial judge used the contents of the email as evidence of the truth of the allegations in the email and used the consistency between the contents of the email and AY's testimony to confirm her testimony. The appellant relies heavily on R versus DiNardo uh, in which the court held that a trial judge's reference to a prior consistent statement as a form of corroboration of the complainant's evidence co constituted reversible error. Miss Witkin, for the Crown, does not suggest that the email was admissible for the truth of its contents, nor does she argue that the consistency between the contents of the email and AY's trial testimony can confirm the truth of AY's evidence. Miss Witkin contends that the trial judge did not use the email for any purpose other than the two legitimate purposes described earlier in these reasons. She submits that the second and third bullet points must be read together as describing a single use of the email as circumstantial evidence to rebut the defense position with respect to AY's motive for reporting the incident and to support the complainant's evidence as to her state of mind when she left the condo. Crown counsel points to the word thus at the start of the bullet point as providing the bridge joining the second and third bullet points. Again, it's, it's wordplay. The word thus makes all the difference. The trial judge's use of the word corroboration in the context of a prior consistent statement by a witness is troubling. The word, as commonly understood, refers to evidence from a source other than the witness whose evidence is challenged, which is capable of confirming the veracity of the evidence of the challenged witness. I'm glad that's in here. So the judge here basically has to explain what corroboration means. So as we commonly understand it, Corroboration refers to evidence from a source that is capable of confirming the veracity of the evidence or the claim. The veracity basically means a lot of things. Um, it's plausibility, it's likeliness, it's, you know, uh, reality, whether or not it's real, like, plausibility basically um but truth really so there you go the definition of definition of corroboration so apparently the crown is basically making a, a a moot argument because she's not really understanding what corroboration is so moving on the email evidence did not have either characteristic characteristic required for evidence to be corroborative. 
It was not from a source independent of AY, nor could the email confirm the veracity of AY's trial testimony unless the email was improperly used for the truth of its contents or the consistency between the email and AY's testimony was improperly viewed as confirmatory of her trial testimony. If, as the appellant submits, the trial judge used the word corroboration as it is customarily used in the law of evidence, he erred in law in treating the email as corroborative. Now, doesn't it just make you sick to your stomach that a judge, a sitting trial judge, does not even know what corroboration means? Appellate review of a trial judge's reasons does not, however, focus on individual words considered in isolation from the rest of the reasons or the entirety of the trial proceedings. <sighs> okay, so all that stuff was said about wordplay, it's all about one word that was inserted and used. Well, now here apparently that makes no difference. Words take their meaning from the context in which they are used. So let's look at the context. Okay. In a criminal case, context includes the evidence led, the arguments made, and the rest of the trial judge's reasons. Fair enough. What might appear to be a judicial misstep or an ambiguity in the language used in the reasons is often clarified after a careful review of the whole of the reasons read in context of the entirety of the proceedings. See all of these precedents cases listed here for the next three sentences. A, a proper contextual reading of the reasons will sometimes demonstrate that the trial judge used the word corroboration in a more limited sense than it is typically used. So apparently there's a lot of case law on how to use the word corroboration. God, that's just... It's very disappointing to read stuff like this. Very disappointing. As just a regular citizen... <laughs> non-law student. <sighs> All right. My review of the entirety of the reasons considered in the context of the trial as a whole reveals nothing that would support the claim that the trial judge meant to use the word corroboration in some way other than in its normal sense, which is to prove the veracity, to confirm the veracity of the truth of a statement. There is no express indication by the trial judge or either counsel at any point in the trial that they understood that the email could not be used for the truth of its contents or to support AY's credibility because its contents were consistent with her testimony. Unlike some of the cases referred to by Crown Counsel, the trial judge's use of the word corroboration is not clarified or modified by any other comment made by him in his reasons or anywhere else in the trial proceedings. So basically the trial judge fails because he, yes, he used the word corroboration and we could consider the context of which he used it. But when I read through all of his reasonings, he did not use any modifier to tell me that he understood what corroboration meant and how it related to his decision. So, Let's see what, what the Crown has to say about this. On appeal, they argue that an exchange between counsel for the accused and the trial judge during the defense's closing submissions demonstrated that the trial judge appreciated that the email was not admissible for the truth of its contents. I do not read the exchange in that way. As I read it, 
the trial judge was simply indicating that he did not regard the sending of the email by AY as necessarily inconsistent, inconsistent with the truth of her allegations. I do not think that the comment says anything about the trial judge's understanding of the evidentiary use that could be made of the email or its contents or any limits on that use. Now here's another display of a crown who is desperately trying to save the conviction. The obviously bullshit conviction by trying to justify the trial judge's improper use of the term corroboration by blatantly misrepresenting a statement that the judge made. I see that a lot too and it's it, every time I see that, it literally makes me nauseous, sick to my stomach, and it just makes me shake my head and, and just disappointment, is utter disappointment to see the incompetence. Knowing the severe consequences that it has on people's lives. Just that little bit of incompetence, that little bit of misstep in wordplay, not understanding what a word means. I see this so many times in cases and these things destroy people's lives. They rip families apart. It, it, it's just utter, it, it's so, I, I, anyway, so, all right, again, I'm almost done here. So the appeal judge continues, to the contrary, to the extent that counsel submissions shed light on how the trial judge may have used the email, one of Crown's counsel's submissions invited a misuse of the email. Crown counsel argued that the consistency in AY's description of what happened from her first telling in the email to her testimony supported her credibility, and he emphasized that AY never wavered. So that Crown at trial who, who submitted and argued that the email was basically proof of the truth of the contents of her claim was a stupid, dumb, uh, incompetent Crown and, you know, I feel sorry for anybody that is uh, opposing that crown in a court of law. Because a lot, of a lot of times, even though these incompetent crowns are prosecuting someone, they will win their conviction. Especially if they have a judge with them that's just as incompetent as in this case. So if the trial judge accepted this argument and he did refer to the consistency between the content of the email and AY's trial testimony in his reasons, he misused the email to buttress AY's credibility by virtue of the consistency between the content of the email and her testimony. This misuse of the email is arguably reflected in the trial judge's description of the email as corroborative, that is, confirmatory of AY's testimony. I also cannot agree with the Crown Council's reading of the bullet point 2 and bullet point 3 as referring to a single evidentiary use of the email. The potential ambiguity introduced by the word thus does not outweigh other indicators demonstrating that the trial judge used the email for a different and improper purpose in the third bullet point. The trial judge saw fit to refer to each in a separate bullet point. The structure of the relevant paragraph strongly suggests that the trial judge saw the email as providing two separate bases for finding AY credible. The language used in bullet point two compared with the language used in bullet point three confirms that the trial judge used the email for two different purposes. 
In bullet point two, the trial judge referred not to the email itself, but to the sending of the email and the failure to follow up on the email with the police as conduct that was consistent with one specific feature of AY's evidence, her description of her state of mind after the incident. The actual content of the email was clearly irrelevant to this analysis. In bullet point three, the trial judge refers to the email sent contemporaneously with the events as corroborating AY's testimony without any reference to a specific part of her testimony. Bullet point three reflects a broader use of the email itself as confirmatory, not of a specific aspect of AY's testimony, but of her testimony as a whole. This broader use of the email to confirm AY's credibility in a general sense is exactly the manner in which evidence which fits the generally accepted meaning of corroboration works to enhance the credibility of a witness. The language of bullet point three indicates to me that the trial judge gave the word corroboration its generally accepted meaning. Lastly, I consider the submission <clears throat> that a trial judge is assumed to know the law and that any ambiguity in the language used by the trial judge should, by force of that assumption, be resolved in favor of an interpretation of the reasons that is consistent with the applicable law. No doubt, trial judges are assumed to be alive to the relevant legal principles. Yes, they are. We assume our judges to be alive to basic legal principles. That assumption, however, operates when there is a true ambiguity in the trial judge's reasons. Having considered these reasons as a whole, I do not see any ambiguity in the trial judge's declaration that the email was corroborative of AY's testimony. I think he meant that it confirmed AY's testimony. In law, it could not have that effect. It's illegal. I would add that it would be somewhat ironic to resort to the assumption that a trial judge knows the law to interpret the word corroboration in a manner that is contrary to the accepted meaning of the word in the legal lexicon. Conclusion. The trial judge erred in law in holding that the email was corroborative of AY's evidence. The Crown, correctly in my view, does not argue that the curative proviso can be applied to this error. I would allow the appeal, quash the conviction, and order a new trial. Now, why wouldn't he enter an acquittal? And, and why would he call a new trial? Well, because again, corroboration is not required in order to... Um, be successful with a claim and prosecute it successfully and get a conviction successfully. It's just a matter of whether the judge, um, if he believes the complainant, writes up his judicial decision all in the proper framework and in, in, in doing the proper wordplay. And if he uses proper, if he uses keywords like corroboration, he has to know what it means. And he has to explain that he understands what it means and why he sees it as a corroborating piece of evidence. So this whole case is about how this judge did that wrong, incorrectly, and failed miserably. But this conclusion in uh, calling a new trial is saying that in a new trial, there can still be a conviction had if a judge believes her side of the story but we don't need corroboration. So maybe the judge is better off to ignore and maybe the crown is better off to ignore the whole email as corroborating evidence of any sort. Just don't use that word. So 
that's the risk when a judge calls a new when appeal court calls a new trial that that could happen but this case did not that this did not happen this case did not proceed the the crown most likely stayed the charges which is not an acquittal it's just an overturned conviction it's not the same as an acquittal it's a victory for the accused person but there's still a mess of things that you need to deal with to get out from underneath um, in terms of uh, criminal record information and being able to travel and things like that <clears throat> um, just just having a history on file still and being able to expunge your record there may still be a problem so hopefully that isn't an issue with this guy but um, anyway in my view I think in cases like this once they've been overturned there should just be an acquittal entered end of story just leave it alone why why waste resources and and you know destroy this man's life even further you know because it's crazy yeah anyway so I'm gonna bring the chat on let's see Marvin Zucker <laughs> yeah uh, two years less a day explains the lack of a jury trial. I'm not sure what that comment means. I'm not sure what you mean by that, Sean. Um, revenge theory. Yes, they believe is a myth. Even if you have the proof and evidence showing their motive, they will clearly ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a myth. Um, that, uh, well, it, it's not also only just a myth. It's also, it's putting the burden on the uh, uh, accused person to prove why she's lying. And if you can't come up with a reason that the judge believes, then you're screwed. And then it makes you look like an idiot. But it's so hard. You can't always know why somebody is lying. You can assume because like in this case, she came on to him and he said, no, 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 I've got a girlfriend, you got a boyfriend, he's waiting for you at home. No, 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 I, I'm not, in, no. She gets angry and upset and leaves in a huff, but he still takes care of her, gets her to the taxi, makes sure she gets home and says, come back in a few days for your photos. He wants, he wants to, it to be an amicable situation. Fair enough, right? But yet he's now in a position where he has to prove to the court, give a convincing reason to the judge why she could be lying and this judge just pff, none of it makes any sense to me whatsoever this is the problem with feminist theory infecting our courts and infecting judges and um the 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 lawyers the the law schools because remember these judges were lawyers before they ever became a judge so they learn this ideology they're not just learning this while they're becoming being a sitting judge. They've already had this ideology ingrained in them while they were in college or while they were an acting crown attorney in most cases. In general, you don't see defense attorneys turned judges using this type of logic. Looking at the situation from an appeal point of view, the judgment must be made based on an error in law. Yeah, generally that's the rule. There has to be, an, you have to pick out an error in law. And in this case, it was 
the term corroboration and um, use, using the evidence that was used and labeled as corroboration. It was done incorrectly. That's the error in this case. So an error in law could be anything, but you have to, in a lot of these cases, like you really have to, um, you have to pick through all of the evidence and the submissions and the trial transcripts and the judicial decision with a fine tooth comb. You've got to compare everything. You've got to go back and forth from transcript to transcript um, and uh, find that error. You, you might have to find a handful of them, as many defense attorneys will do, appeal, appeal lawyers will do. Um, because they know that the judge will likely only consider one of them or two of them, but not all of them. So hopefully as long as there's one in there that catches the judge's eye, the appeal court's eye, that that's, that will be their winning appeal ground. That will be their winning error in law. Um, Philorator asks, what does the curative provisio mean? What is the appeal judge saying? Um, I'd have to look it up, but I'm going to go off the top of my head in this context here. That is that um, determining, uh, like curing the case, curing the error here would the the uh, cure would be to enter an acquittal or like what are the uh, um, the options to cure this overturned conviction? What happens after that? Um, and that could potentially be um, to enter an acquittal, replace the conviction with an acquittal, um, or ask for a new um, sorry, ask for a new trial with with certain conditions. I believe that's what it is in this context. I'm not 100% sure. I might be wrong. So because it was not asked for, a or you know, brought up by either counsel the judge is open to coming up with his own um, determination, and that is to overturn the conviction, but then call a new trial, which isn't a cure, <laughs> because a cure is an end-all. End-all, you know, uh, uh, an action that effectively ends this entire case. But with this conclusion, this decision, the judge says, new trial calls a new trial which means the dude everything has to start all over again it, you're all back to the point where the dude's arrested put in jail has to have a bail hearing and go through everything a whole new trial all over again so phil Rader, i hope that answers your question um, but do google it to make sure i'm on the right track with that <clears throat> but also context matters so yeah so, Sean, because the original judge was looking for a legal-sounding excuse for his personal belief. Yeah, it, see, that's the problem, is that bias and subjective reasoning is still being used by judges. Um, but on paper, in their written framework, they don't acknowledge any bias or subjective reasoning. In this case, he just outright improperly made you know justified her credibility by saying it was corroborated and but his framework was illegal he did it in an illegal way so 
this is the problem with appeals is in appeal courts is like it's still run by people right so people another set like let's let me let me just look uh let me go back to the trial stage of this any other judge could have been sitting on and hearing the same case and could have easily um acquitted the guy in a way that the crown would never be able to overturn if he had just the right legal uh, framework, the legal reasoning framework in his decision. So what does that tell you? You know, one, you could have put the same guy, the same case in front of two different judges and get the complete opposite results. You can only get a jury trial for indictable with a five-year penalty. Oh, so Sean, you're wondering why there's no jury in this trial. Okay, so yeah, this, I'm assuming this was an indict, an indictment versus a summary trial. Um, I'm really not sure it wasn't explained, but let's assume um, it was an indictment. So in, an, in, in these cases, you don't have to have a jury. You're not automatically, you have the right to a jury, but many people, many defendants in these cases choose not to get a jury or their defense lawyer will talk them out of having a jury. But most people that I know that I've talked to who've been in the early stages of their f false accusation, um, who've already been arrested by the police and processed and they're awaiting a trial, they always want a jury. They want their case in front of a jury because they know that a whole panel of people has to see through all of the bullshit. They, um, then what happens, and I would probably say maybe 85% of these cases is, even though that guy initially wanted a jury, it got switched over. The defense lawyer, somebody convinced him that a jury was not a good idea for one reason, and there's many reasons. Yeah, throw arrow darts and hope one sticks. Yeah, it's no different than the crowns throwing, you know, multiple charges at the wall, hoping some of them will stick. At least one. At least one to get a conviction. Um, rules governing appeals permits an appeal to be dismissed despite the presence of a legal error at trial if it is found that the error is harmless and does not cause a miscarriage of justice. In other words, the Crown could have argued that the judge's error would not have made a difference. Yes. Um, that's, yeah, in this, in that's the correct uh, context for this because oh, it's so hard to wrap my head around this stuff because I read these all the time where sometimes that little conclusion bit, the, the appeal courts will actually say, um, there is, um, you know, without this error, it's still possible, you know, there's still enough evidence for conviction. But then the problem with that is it makes it sound like there's, you know, there's actual evidence, but there isn't. The only evidence that they're talking about in these cases is his statement and her statement or her statement and his defense. It's always just testimony. So if that's the only evidence you have, then there's 
always a chance, a conviction, a safe conviction can occur. Okay? I hope that clears things up more. Yeah, I got you, Filarator. Uh, curative resolution. Appellate courts to dismiss appeals despite legal errors in court if they're deemed harmless. Not yeah, it's it can also be used that way as well. <clears throat> uh, mine Lucifer. <laughs> yes, it can be used that way, the other way as well. Um, okay, so. As long as a miscarriage of justice is considered not significant enough to even hear an appeal, justice served. All of these court processes are just a show. Yeah, well, it's, it's theater for the lawyers, isn't it? Because, I mean, was this case not a good example of wordplay? It's all about wordplay and getting just the right argument and hoping your argument is believed. And really, while these people are making their arguments, these lawyers are making their arguments, they're not speaking for their clients because their clients are not telling their lawyers to say these things. Their clients are telling them all kinds of other things. Like, that bitch is crazy, but this lawyer cannot say that. This lawyer, the lawyers have to use all of these legal frameworks to, to put together these arguments and hope that they've, you know, arranged their words and arguments in just the right way. And on appeal, they get a chance to sort of justify those arguments like we saw in this case. It's all it is. It's wordplay. It's theater for these lawyers. And they're not even thinking about the consequences of the man in the prisoner's box. That's what is really sad about this. Your lawyer will tell you um, a judge only trial will look at the facts and evidence only later you find that the judge com can omit what they want. Yeah, so when you're on the hot seat and you're ready for trial and you're you still have a chance to decide if you want to go with a jury or judge only. Your lawyer is going to tell you that a jury's going to find you guilty, man. You know, they're going to see her up on the stage and she's going to turn on the waterworks and she's going to be crying and all emotional. Um, and, you know, all of these things you told me, all of these reasons you told me that make, you know, why she might have be doing this to you. I can't just, you know, present those to the judge. We're going to have to have an application for this piece of evidence, an application for that piece of evidence, and an application for another piece of evidence. And you know what? The jury is not going to see all of the evidence by the end of it. So the, the chances of them making the wrong decision are high. And it's going to make this take longer and it's going to cost you more. So, dude, do you still want a jury? <laughs> And then both of these guys, you know, they're often these guys will say, you know, if you don't have the money and all of those things scare you, then you're going to say, no, um, I'll just do judge only because, you know, we might have a better chance. The, but you just never know. You just never know. 
If you defend yourself, they won't let you cross-examine. Yeah, but in sex crime cases, you're not allowed to defend yourself. Um, you, you have to have another lawyer or uh, the court has to appoint a lawyer to cross-examine the witness. Um, but yeah, basically in sex cases, especially if a youth is involved um, or uh, I think in cases of domestic violence where it's just physical abuse, recent, it might be allowed, but even then I'm not sure. But generally in crimes against women, it's not allowed. You cannot defend yourself. Uh, you or Sorry, you cannot cross-examine your complainant. <clears throat> So basically, the whole thing has to be run by a lawyer. You're going to fail miserably. Yeah, in domestic. Yeah, I didn't think so. So, mine, Lucy Fuhrer, I thought the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt was very strict. Until looking at cases with no evidence and convictions based on who a judge believes more. Exactly. That's how I got here. That's, uh, that's, that's what I thought, too. And that's why I have this channel, <laughs> is to show everybody what's actually happening in our courts. In Canada, the court can find you guilty and not prove anything. Yes, that's another thing. So if the court finds you guilty, oh, you know, the lawyers all say, well, the, the criminal court uses the highest bar of, per, of proof, the burden of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, you were proven guilty. But then, as mine Lucifer says, but um, how can you prove somebody guilty when there's no evidence? All you have are statements. But in our law, statement is views, view, statements equals evidence. So when we read write-ups in the newspapers and the media and people are talking about the evidence, that's often all they're talking about and they don't even know it. They're just, it, they're just statements. And it does come down to the judge and who they believe. And it's, it's, it's a, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea until just a few years ago and it was quite a shock. Quite a shock. The principle of intent has fallen by the wayside. Intent, um, like proving intent, like sexual intent for touching, things like that. Um, that's proving an element of the crime, which takes us to the civil code, where each crime has elements laid out that must be proven. We've lost that. It's just poof, gone. These cases are more like a civil balance of probabilities. Exactly, Sean. Thank you. Um, it is. It's very true. Um, the difference between a civil case and a criminal case is that in a civil case, a civil case would be pursued if the dude you're suing has money. Because civil cases always result in settlements. That's just the way they work. There's no proof... Uh, there's no guilty or innocent. It's just a settlement of how much money the the complainant is going to get or the plaintiff is going to get. <clears throat> but no civil lawyer is going to help you sue that person if they know that person has no money. So what's your next best alternative? 
criminal because then you can make compensation a criminal injuries board compensation claim and you don't need a conviction to do it but if you have a conviction you will get more money you'll probably get the same amount of money as you would have sought in a civil suit so yep so thanks guys I think this was a good one tonight um, it's good to see that this case was a really good example of our really depressing criminal justice system so Philorator, I know another case where the police had three pieces of exculpatory evidence and the Crown knew it, yet still went to trial. I guess the Crown thought the defense was too stupid or something. It's possible. I don't know if they think it's too stupid. I think it's more the Crown just thinks they can get away with whatever, anything. And they know they have the law on their side because exculpatory evidence is most likely something that even if the defense did have it in his possession, he would have to pay for an application, uh, 276 or 278, some sort of application hearing to get that evidence admitted. And uh, often the crowns typically expect that it's not, that type of application is not gonna happen because defense lawyers are lazy, not so much stupid, but they're lazy. Um, as Diana Davison said in her most recent video, um, she's finding that defense lawyers do not have the time to comb through your evidence. And then by the time you get to trial, nobody's prepared. And it's a really sad state of affairs. It's true. It's a really sad state of affairs. So now Diana's taking on as many cases as she can to help people find their evidence for their case and then give their evidence to their lawyer. The problem with that is that it should be the lawyer's job, the lawyer and the crown. So it also goes to show how malicious our crowns are. It's the feminist crowns. Not all crowns will do this. Not all crowns are malicious and feminist and determined to win their conviction. Not all crowns are. And if you want an example of a good crown, look at the Gian Gomeshi case. The crown in that case was actually an, uh, an up, a fair, up and up, legitimate, perfect example of what a crown, an officer of the court is supposed to do. He was a good, good crown. Um, unfortunately, judges don't seem to have much control or say over what our crowns do and how they it's uh it's again how much power do judges have how much power are judges supposed to have how much power has have the crowns taken away from judges hmm it's another we'll find that out maybe in another case that i dig up for you all right guys so thanks again it was a good one tonight i think thanks for joining in and anybody else who might still be watching don't forget um, if you haven't already to subscribe subscribe <clears throat> and uh, yeah this will be uploaded shortly momentarily all right everybody thank you very much and have a good night bye